Okay, well, welcome and welcome back to Unapologetically Black Unicorns. And, and I get to say welcome back to a guest who's been here before. That's so much fun. I was saying welcome back to the listeners, but hey, I'm saying it to the guest. And um, I'm actually going to have um, her introduce herself. Um, Kalechi, mind doing a brief introduction of yourself to our listeners? Absolutely. Hi, everyone. I'm Kalechi Bozo. It's so great to be back on the pod. I am a Black liberatory coach, a peer supporter, and the co-editor of We've Been Too Patient, Voices from Radical Mental Health. And I'm in a new anthology called Trauma, Tresses, and Truth, Untangling Our Hair Through Personal Narratives by Lizette Weiner and through Chicago Press. Okay, love it, love it. And so this time we are actually going to be talking about this new anthology and your work in the anthology. And I'm sure listeners are going, wait, what? What, what's happening? We're talking about hair. We're talking about hair. That would be my valley girl. <laughs> yes, we're talking about our hair. We're talking about our hair. We're talking about Black women's hair. And like, why would we be doing this? So the last time we spoke, I think um, it was around your, your other um, book in which you were a co-editor. We've been too patient, I believe. Well, you've been on the podcast a couple of times, but but um, the the point is when we were when we were having this conversation, I think I was talking myself about how I articulate where for for my mental health condition, where the voices are, and how I've articulated that to my providers, how I think about it, and I think about it relative to uh, something in in uh, the black community that we call the kitchen. I said, oh yeah, when the voices are really bad, you know, uh, I, I just check how they're doing in the kitchen, and and people think, wait, what, are they cooking in there? They're getting salt and pepper. Mm-hmm. Like, what the heck are they? Not are they at all. like, what are they doing in there? Um, and I'm like, no, wrong, wrong kitchen. The kitchen is in the back of our our of our our head at the nape of our neck um and and i think i said it's where our hair gets nappy and i use the word nappy and and i think um nappy not as in napkin not as in diaper in the uk but nappy as in curly and tight and Mm -hmm. um sometimes we call our hair going back if our hair has been straightened we have all this language around hair we have all this history around hair and we also have to be careful about the words we choose because sometimes those words have not been pleasant. And nappy, I think, is one of those words. And so we stopped ourselves. Do you, do you remember kind of us having that conversation? Yeah, I do remember us having that conversation and saying like, oh, do we want to use this language? And, you know, there's conversations you and I can have in a literal kitchen about the kitchen. And then there's the who's listening audience conversation. And so... I think we had this moment of reflection and you had said, you know, you should definitely come back and you should talk a bit more about the book and had that open invitation. Yeah, exactly. So I'm glad you're, you're back. And um, I think, uh, you know, this is where we can even think about when we have to um, do the word that is escaping my mind right now. Oh, when we have to code switch. Yes. Code switching. I'm glad that it like left your mind for a moment because maybe you haven't been code switching. (laughs) Exactly. It's like, I don't want to code switch. Don't make me code switch. But yeah, that we, that, you know, between you and I, when we're by ourselves or, you know, with our friends, whatever, we may use the word nappy because we're kind of with ourselves. We understand what we mean by it. There's nothing derogatory. There's nothing about it other than being able to understand kind of what that means. But um, we may have to do some code switching. And also we may have to recognize that, you know, for, for some Black women, there's so much trauma 
around yes. our hair that even in close conversation or public conversation, the word nappy may bring up things for them that is uncomfortable. So um, that's why we said, yep, yeah, we need to come back and talk about this a little bit more. Absolutely. And I, I love that also people will embrace brace different language or say kinky. And like, I mean, there's always an invitation to meet language where you're at. And this is similar with mental health and how people identify, right? Like, there's a lot of words people use to to claim and or reclaim. They might use mad. They might use mentally ill. I don't love that language. They might use survivor. They might use peer. So I think there is something around language around hair. And that also connects us to mental health. That makes sense for me. This this is, uh, you know, always been an area of interest um, for me. Um, I don't know why our lives revolve around our hair. For, for, for women and probably in, in general, maybe. It's so much time to do. <laughs> it's time to do, but it's also kind of like, I don't, yeah, it's just one of these things where when I think about growing up and the processes we went through, not, not processing my hair, which we did do when I was growing up, I had a lot of hair. Um, so, but, but it was always about <laughs> my mom. I would love my mom. Yeah. Don't leave the house with curlers. You don't, you, people don't need to see that. Like nowadays it's like put on the bonnet. I couldn't even put on a bonnet with curlers under it and go out. Like, no, absolutely not. There was this sacredness about the hair. There was this privacy about the hair. There was this concern about how other people, non-black people would judge the mm -hmm. hair, which I think is another reason why there was so much time spent on making sure that our hair looked a certain way before we left the house because of what people could say, would say, did say about um, our hair. I've even with other Black people, people have said, well, wait, what are you? I beg your pardon? I'm not a Martian. I What, what, what do you mean? What am I? Well, you have long hair. You must have that Indian in you. And it's like, okay. Like, you know what I mean? Is all I this- do. There's so much complexity around hair and how you identify or that conversation that feels so ugly to say of like, do you have good hair and what does good hair even mean? And what does that really mean um, around who your ancestors may be or who we're trying to pretend our ancestors are just to be real, real um, in our family, there were family members who have been claiming indigenous lineage for years because of the way our hair fell. And, you know, come to find out that was not true. There was a painful past of like who our ancestors are and how we've been enslaved. And there's almost this piece of like good hair, but I have the Indian hair, right? Like that's yeah. the like, quote unquote, that indigenous hair. And so what is, what is going to make me feel closer or easy to assimilate or easy not to be bothered or, or fit in or not get called out or get that job promotion yes. um, I talk about. Right. So it is, it is deeply complex and there's a lot of pain and hurt and also celebration in the conversation around here. And I remember reaching this moment. I just have to say it. I've been holding black healing spaces for employees since 2020, since the conversation or the violence that got re-sparked, it's really been ongoing, but people were paying attention to the racialized violence against Black folks um, at the hands of law enforcement. And so I was holding these healing Black spaces. And I got to this point where I knew it was healing because this, this <laughs> the sister was taking her hair down in a call. She was taking out her braids, which is, I have to tell you, is like one of the most vulnerable 
things to do is to take out your hair and show it and in its roughest, beautiful, raw state. And I was like, we have reached a, we have reached a place of healing where we can do this on a Zoom call and it is safe enough for someone to do that. Wow. Wow. Exactly. Exactly. That's, um, you know, what I love so much about the um, entire book when I was reading, and I haven't read through all of it because it's not a book that one needs to read technically, at least in my opinion, from beginning to end, I will pick which stories I want to read and and sort of pick and choose and, and read them. And, you know, just to read some of the stories that are about the history of our hair and our hair in relationship to white people. <laughs> you know, or white people in relationship to our hair, whichever way we want to put it. But that's sort of, you know, some of the history I actually was not really familiar with about, um, uh, you know, different laws um, well before the Crown Act. So we're not even talking about Crown Act, which we could talk a little bit about. But, you know, uh, you know, during times of enslavement that said, you know, how black women had to have their hair color, their hair couldn't be out. So, you know, head wraps or, you know, those, uh, the head wraps that you see a lot of like, um, quote unquote, mammy figures in, I'm just going to, you know, my, my, I'm doing the finger quotes around that term, Mm -hmm. you know, did come from laws that were, were, were set in certain states. And I, I had no idea about that. Um, I thought, well, okay, it's, it's hot and I want to wrap my head. No, (laughs) that is not what was going on. And so some of that was really fascinating to learn about sort of the, the, the history of the politics of our hair too. And as I was reading it, you know, I was also thinking about, you know, my own relationship with my hair and um, how that relationship has resulted in how I think about myself as a person um, or how I thought about myself that I don't think this is currently the way that I have to worry about it, but, you know, and how it in- impacted my understanding of my identity, how I felt about myself and also my own emotional well-being. And so, um, and I think that's pretty deep that the politicizing of our hair can also affect our emotional and well-being and our mental health. That to me is kind of like, well, wait, how did that happen? That is just almost too much. But before we get deep, deep, deep into this conversation, um, you know, I thought maybe it would be a good idea if you could read from a part of your chapter in the anthology, and then um, then we can discuss. Oh, that's lovely. Thank you so much for the invitation. Um, so my my chapter is called Beauty is Pain, A Hair Story. I'm going to be reading from chapter three, but I just want you to know, definitely check out the book because there's so many contributors and amazing things. But chapter one is hot comb with a side of charred ear. So those folks who know what that means know what that means. Chapter two is the French Jerry Curl, an adventure in um, getting the Jerry Curl by accident. And then I'm going to read for you right now chapter three, The Little Chop. There is no big chop story. I didn't one day gather all my courage, stare in the mirror at my overly processed broken hair and say, I'm done. I didn't take tiny sharp shears and slash the remnants of pain and oppression of control and chemicals. I didn't liberate my locks by any traditional means. I had a little chop. I stopped going to salons to get my hair permed. I embraced cornrows and braids and let my hair grow out of the past. One thing I appreciated more as I got older was my time. I pondered the number of hours I've spent waiting in the chair under a blow dryer. I reclaimed that time by upending that painful hair narrative. And over time, my hair became long and thick. 
Today, it is chemical-free, but it wears many masks and lives in constant fluctuation and transformation. My first love told me he was not attracted to me when I wore braids. He liked my hair straight and thought I was prettier that way. Being young and in love makes you do things you are likely to question later. While we dated, I refused to get braids, even though I was dealing with Georgia heat and a lot of hair maintenance to keep him happy. He fed into the same garbage of black beauty not being real, and it needed me to match some sort of Eurocentric standard. I later discovered the truth. I was pretty, period. I returned to the salon for my braids, and he left. Sometimes my hair is strategic. One white colleague said to me, you look so much more professional with your hair like that. That colleague was referring to my change from braids to a straight hair weave. I silently cursed him and realized the truth. I was more likely to get a return call for jobs if my hair appeared straight. During job interviews, I wore weave and laid my edges down with gel to get my foot in the door. And once I was hired, I'd unveil my natural hair and let it breathe. I'd wear braids, cornrows, whatever style I was feeling. I soon decided that working at a place where people would judge me and hire me based upon my appearance was reinforcing a colonized beauty measure and was an unhealthy choice in the long run. Eventually, I quit my job. Sometimes I wear Marley faux locks. Men are far more respectful, and I receive fewer catcalls. However, assumptions follow about what I eat. No pork, only veggies, how much I smoke, a lot, and what I smoke, and how radical I am. Shouldn't I be organizing something? Oftentimes, a self-proclaimed ally, a curious bystander, or someone with no home training will try to touch my hair, and for the record, no. You cannot touch my hair. My hair is a fluid choice, my choice. Sometimes I like wearing bouncy curls that tend to shave years off and brighten my mood. I love wearing colorful braids that highlight my cheekbones. And when I need more strength, I look to locks to charge me with power and queen-like moves. My hair is political and brings me joy. I don't assign it labels of good hair or bad hair. Black women and natural hair have a complicated history and relationship, and I'm working toward healing it my way and on my terms. Snap, snap, clap, clap, thumbs up. I love it. I love all three chapters. I resonate with them all, less the Jerry Curl. I missed the Jerry Curl phase. My mother was adamant, no. Um, (laughs) So that did not happen. But, you know, as I was, you know, listening to, to your story, you know, I was thinking, again, how people make assumptions about whether you're pretty or not, whether you're professional or not, and what standard is that set against? Yet, um, and I I don't think it was covered in, you may have covered it elsewhere in your chapter, it was covered elsewhere in the book, when Bo Derek started wearing braids. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, let's go there. Like, then it was okay. And it's okay if white women do it, but when black women do it, it's still this, well, you don't look professional. How did you get to this point where it's like, I don't, I don't care what the standard is. I don't, I don't care what, this is what I need to do for me. You know, as you said at the end, this is what is going to bring you joy. Yeah. You know, I think part of it is witnessing that Black attributes on other races are celebrated, right? Like full lips, curves, maybe big butts, braids, right? I mean, and not always on us. And I think there's a part of me that was like, wait a second. I'm the original <laughs> you, you were into a knockoff. And I think there was a part of me that just had to say, like, if I'm trying to seek beauty and affirmation 
from mainstream media, from people who are subscribing to what white supremacy and Eurocentric beliefs are about beauty, I'm going to be depressed. I'm never going to be able to connect with my ancestors where where they came from. And, you know, my folks are from Nigeria. Like, I'm not going to be able to connect with that. And I, I, I felt like I had just kind of had enough. Also, putting chemicals, I mean, and this is, this is not a judgment for people who are doing this, but I, the pain of actually having, like the physical pain of having my hair burn <laughs> and someone have to wash it out and having my scalp just have black patches so that I could look a certain way. And then also have that be ruined within 48 hours if it rained. Like there was like a practical part of me that just was tired. And then there was like a spiritual part of me that wanted to be free. And I wear all different kinds of hairstyles. Like I wear my hair straight. I wear it in, in um, braids. I, I, I like the fluidity and flexibility. And underneath all of those things, my hair is natural. I have natural hair. And I think having natural hair and when I take everything off and it's just out, I think the pandemic actually was maybe one of the first times I was really able to celebrate myself because there was no hairdresser. There was me and my hair and we had to figure some things out. And I think there was like, we were working towards this reclamation, but there was something about the way my husband looked at me when I took it all off and just loved on me and the way that I looked at myself and said, look at, look at these curls, look at these cheekbones, like, look at this natural hair. Why haven't I been celebrating her? And I think that that allowed me to really say like, yes, I can wear it all different styles and I will. And I don't need to look like someone else wants me to look. I look like how I want to look. Yeah. And it's very different about who I'm pleasing versus like, oh, I'm going to try to get this job, right? I'm not yeah. trying to get the job anymore like I was. Yeah, yeah. And I was thinking too, <laughs> when you say, this is my hair, by the way, this is the conversation. And, you know, I hate to put my dad on blast, but I'm going to put my dad on blast. <laughs> <laughs> that, you know, um, uh, I've been wearing an undercut for several years now. And um, it, it started off for two reasons. But the main reason was that I was... Um, you know, struggling with a, you know, thyroid issue. And, um, you know, that can cause your hair to fall out. And it was falling out only in one place. And that was um, sort of the bottom half. And so my hair looked to me, we, I was like, okay, I can't deal with this. Just, just cut this off. I really can't take it. <laughs> I don't know what to do with it anymore. And um, truthfully, so dang freeing, let's just say. <laughs> That, you know, the kitchen, what kitchen? There's no hair there now because it's an <laughs> undercut. I have no kitchen. So I don't have to worry about the kitchen. So when I say my voices are in the kitchen, yeah, maybe they are, maybe they aren't because, well, there's no kitchen. There's but, no kitchen. <laughs> but, but my father says, uh, yeah, when are you going to grow that out? When, when are you going to grow that out? I'm like, dad, I'm not going to grow it out. Well, you know, I really think you ought. I'm like, dad, when you have to wear this hair on your head mm. and you're out and about doing your thing, you can say grow it out or not grow it out because it's yours but this is mine and this is how it's going to be. And after that, he stopped bugging me about he's whether or not he's like, okay, well, you know, but, but it's kind of like, I have to take care of it. I have to live with it. This is how I want to live with it. Sorry. It makes you uncomfortable. Sorry. You don't feel like it looks like whatever the the picture of whatever I should be looking like is, and this is it. Take it or leave it. I got to pause you. I love the way your hair looks. I think you look like a rock star. I'm like, how do I 
How do I figure that out? <laughs> you know, when, when you go 100% gray, <laughs> which I, I did, I, I started going gray early. I started going gray about maybe the age of 16 or so. And I think my great grandmother, maybe on both sides, I cannot remember, also went um, gray very early. And then a great, great grandmother went like, you know, the legend says gray overnight. So lucky me, I got that gene of gray. So when, when I cut my hair back, I was not fully gray. Um, and now I am fully gray. <laughs> fully gray. And I'm like, I'm not Randy. As other women put gray in their hair purposely. purposely. I'm sitting here going, it's going to happen. What y'all rushing for? <laughs> you know, don't rush. Cause as soon as it happens, y'all are going to be covering that gray up. But yeah, the undercut, I decided um, I was coloring it purple. I don't remember. I don't know. If I do remember, remember that. Yep. But, but the bigger thing is it made me look and feel different than my friends. And that difference was one that wasn't one that I could own with pride because I knew the difference was based on who I was as a black girl, as a black person. And during those times, um, yes, you know, my parents did everything to make me um, and, and, you know, my, my brother uh, proud of who we are as black people. Um, yet I think you talk about this in, an, in another part of your, uh, of your chapter, it might've been in the, the first, the first chapter about um, your mother trying to, you know, instilling in you pride about who you are as um, a Nigerian American woman and you hearing messages that were louder than the messages oh, that, goodness. right? Because there were probably more of them. It's coming from friends. It's coming from teachers. It's coming from the public. So you have all of these messages that are contending with the messages that are happening in our home. And sometimes those other messages are louder. Yeah. I, I absolutely totally resonate with that. And I feel like, you know, people always say representation matters and it's also like, what type of representation are we seeing? Are we seeing like, I mean, it's to the end of like colorism and, and Eurocentricness, like, are we seeing black people who could pass? Right. And so a lot of times when, you know, I was growing up, you know, who, what was considered beauty for black people like might be like Mariah Carey, right? And I don't look anything like her. My hair doesn't look anything like her. My skin doesn't look anything like her. And I'm that is who I'm told is beautiful and is like me, right? And I wasn't seeing a lot of people with natural hair outside of like, you know, Black Panthers and Harris Political and Angela Davis. And that was like a different conversation that was connected to aggression or anger right that was the messages that were there it's like oh if you're you're revolutionary or do you want to be feminine and soft and loved right mm -hmm. so these these are the messages that are coming and no one is explicitly saying them it's what i'm seeing it's how people are interacting with me it's comments it's people touching my hair it's so much that i'm absorbing and so my mother reading me these fairy tales about Mufaro's beautiful daughters and cornrowing my hair and telling me these important messages is important. And imagine 150 other messages every day, conscious, unconscious, overt, covert happening. And how does that peel away at your identity? How does that peel away at what your worth is? How does that peel away of your belonging and acceptance? And I think this has been a journey of coming back to what my mother was trying to originally 
instill upon me and being like, oh, okay, mom, you were right. You were right. And, you know, she was doing that. It was like five. I haven't been five for a very long time. So just to say it's a, it's a very long journey to combat, you know, internalized racism, what, what yeah. we were taught about who yeah. we are and then what we did to ourselves, like brown paper bag tests. Like there's so much. And for those who don't know, that's a test that different sororities or fraternities use say if you were lighter than a brown paper bag you could be part of black elite right and so that's you know if that's what is beautiful in black culture and community it still doesn't look like me and so so when now I see everyone with their hair out and uh, just loving themselves and on TikTok and showing videos about conditioning and just as if it's not a thing and it's so beautiful and freeing. And I'm just so excited for this generation to just have a different conversation, but that was not what was happening when I was young. No, no. Um, you're, you're reminding me that if, if folks are kind of like, well, I, this, this might not be something that resonates with them or their culture or African-American culture in particular. Um, as you were talking, I was thinking of the Spike Lee movie school days, right? Where, mm-hmm. <laughs> right where um they had the two <laughs> the, the sororities and, and and um and i don't remember the names of them but um if you if you can check out that movie i think you'll get a sense of what it is we're talking about um related to the internalized part of it and how like one of the sororities i think it was was uh everybody had more sort of straight hair eurocentric hair and then the other sorority everybody had natural hair i i don't want to say though i don't want to say what the groups are i think people need to watch the movie yeah you i think this is an invitation for them to watch they can also check out chris's chris rock's good hair uh documentary that Mm -hmm. that where he is responding to his daughter asking about does she have good hair and it's really powerful to unpack and so um i think and they can they can join the trauma trusses and truth second virtual conference which is interrogating black women's natural hair so that will be august 4th through the 6th 2023 and it's really examining the politics of black women's natural hair and also we have our afro latina sisters in the conversation and they've had such complex nuanced conversations as well Mm-hmm. around colorism and how their hair shows up and how they're perceived or accepted. So yeah. definitely want to plug that as well. Um, and well done. There, there's well, poems well and place, everything. Well-placed yeah. plug, Kletchy. Love that. So um, I, I also wanted to bring up something that you said about your hair being strategic. And um, I'm going to read a line from another chapter of, of the book, because I think this also ties into something that you said. Black women um, maneuvering nappy. <laughs> um, and who's the author here? Um, Judy Juanita. Yes, uh, Judy Juanita. Judy Juanita. And um, her last sentence is, and, and this is again, people talking about their own life experience and mixed in with some history. And her chapter is a bit of both her own lived experience or life experiences. And she then also provided some history about sort of uh, the black hair and, and um, the politics of black hair. But she says in the in the last um, sentence that the black woman historically has not been afraid of showing who she is ethnically, but she's had to be careful where and when to be courageous. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh man, that's that just resonated with me as a black woman, as a black woman re- in relation to my hair, and also as a black person living with a mental health condition about 
how I show up, when I show up, and in what ways I can be courageous. And and it'll look different uh, for me than it may look for other people. And so when you were talking about, uh, you know, the boyfriend, yeah, Hmm. you know, you're prettier when you do this. And you were like, you know what, bump that. This is what I'm doing. Um, So what what did it mean when you said that your hair is strategic? Yeah, I think that was coming from a place that I started noticing that when I had a certain hairstyle, that I would be treated based on my hair. So I look exactly the same, but I'm treated differently. So when my hair was straightened or I was wearing weaves and and it was like long, I got callbacks for jobs. I got invited to different things. I got treated better. Um, and it feels, it just feels gross to say, but I know I started noticing that. And then if I had my hair in braids, not treated as well, but if my hair was in locks, I wouldn't get cat calls because people were like, sis, we respect you. Like it was like, <laughs> you're a goddess. Suddenly you were a goddess like, on a pedestal. You're a goddess. I love you, sis. You're a goddess. And so I, I, I definitely found that I would be strategic with it. Like, or I felt like, okay, I'm applying for this job. Or at the time when I was working in journalism, I was like, Ooh, let me make sure my hair looks like this so I can move on to the next round because I know it's part of the package. And, and also it doesn't feel good to name that and say it and be strategic about it. And it also is what a lot of people deal with. Um, I'm now seeing newscasters wearing their hair natural, but Mm -hmm. my goodness, that was not the case in the past. Um, So I think it has been strategic, but now I'm, it's very different when you work for yourself. Now I'm like, you can take me or leave me. Yes. And I know some people still have to be strategic. They still have to be careful. They still have to, you know, there is a movement to chop and to do this big chop and, and, and go back to natural and, and reclaim. And it's such a beautiful movement. And, uh, and some people are in spaces where that isn't safe. Yeah. And so we don't want to leave out our folks who are in those spaces. Mm-hmm. It's just to have like a nuanced conversation about, yeah. what we can and can't do or, or how we're treated. And I've definitely been treated differently based on how, what is on yeah. my head. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you're talking about, you know, when you're working in journalism and in that same chapter I read from where there's partial history in there, she's talking about in 1971, newscaster Melba Tolliver's Afro got her fired from WABC TV in New York. Her Afro Literally, she came in one day. She had straight hair. I mean, she had been wearing her hair straightened. And then she came in um, the very next day with that afro. And they told her, go back and straighten your hair. You're not getting on the air. Well, you know, girlfriend lost her job. So Mm. this is real. This is like our history informs how and what we do don't want it to be an abstraction that we talk about, oh, well, that really wouldn't happen or it wouldn't cause somebody to lose their job. Yeah, it did. I mean, there's a reason there's a crown act. There's literally a reason why legislation has passed not to discriminate people based on their hair is because people are discriminated based on their hair. So it's not just like, oh, wow, Kalechi had a rough time that day, but it was just her experience. No, this is a real thing that happens to people. People getting passed up for promotions, people not getting job interviews, people being called dirty because they have lots. Like it's, it's horrible. Like those there are so many different kind of discriminatory things that happen to us because of our hair. So when people are strategic about their hair, 
I just don't want them to have shame about it because we are actually discriminated against. Right. So there's both. And in that, like, I know this happens. How do I navigate it? It's like code switching. Well, what will I say to you now that I'm in this space versus what am I going to say in my house and what language or vernacular am I going to access? So I think of it like that. Code switching can happen in our language and our clothes and our hair. Because we, we certainly can't switch our, our skin. Nope. You know, uh, so, um, you know, as we wrap up and I, you know, we could talk forever, which, which yeah. we do um, and which we can. But I, I thought this was just such an important conversation to have, especially, you know, we're wrapping up Minority Mental Health Month, uh, B.B. Moore Campbell, Minority Mental Health Month. And here we are talking about hair, but it is connected to our mental health and well-being um, and how we understand that and how we're able to have control over how we want to show up, hair included, as as Black women, to protect our mental health and to advance our mental health and well-being. So wanted to make sure that we could bring in different ways of having this conversation. But before we wrap up, I always ask people to do wisdom dropping. What piece of wisdom would you like to drop? You've dropped a lot already. Well, you know, I was actually thinking about the significance of this month and our fearless editor, Lizette Wagner, who brought us all together, she wrote this abstract in the middle of 2020 because of all of the racialized violence and pain and because of a way, it was a way for her to deal with the murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Aubrey, and so many other folks. And she wanted to birth something. And she says, she's like, I don't know if this book would exist if it was 2021, if I had submitted in 2021 or 2022, I knew I had to get this out there. And it was basically this call for us to celebrate and to acknowledge like there's trauma in this and there is also celebration of reclamation. So I do want to name that, you know, we, we are in this anthology through this pain and now it's showing up in schools people are using this in uh, curriculum yes. like this is this is such such a beautiful uh testimony it's a love story to our history an acknowledgement of pain and i think the wisdom i would leave is that you know so many different things are birthed out of pain um and we don't have to stay in the pain what can we celebrate where can we reclaim our joy and part of part of that is identity part of that is understanding what our ancestors have done and survived and provided for us. And so I think for this this month, this minority mental health month, this BIPOC mental health month, this B.B. Moore Campbell mental health month, uplifting those who, who dreamed bigger for us and yeah. living those dreams for them since yeah. they are not with us. Snap, clap, thumbs up. Thank you so much, Kalechi, for joining me on Unapologetically Black Unicorns. Always a pleasure. And you know, we're going to sign off, but we're going to continue to talk. Sorry, people, you're not going to hear that part of it. But thank you. <laughs> thank, thank you so you. much. Yes. And please come to the conference August 4th through 6th. Um, we'll add some links so you can access it. But you can just look up Trauma, Trusses, and Truth Conference um, at Hay Summit. And we'd love to see you there. We have so many great, great things. And I'll be reading the other two chapters if you want to know what happened to that Jerry Curl now. Yeah, the Jerry Curl. We got to know. We have to know. Um, So we will make sure that we have links for the book as well as the conference um, in the description. So it'll be easy for people to um, access it and share it. And the other thing, I'm sorry that I, (laughs) yeah, I'm going to go back to the producer who says, remember to like, subscribe, comment. Okay, I said it. 
producer, don't cut that out because you told me to say it. So I said it, but actually the most important, the most important thing to do, I think those things are important, but I, and I think the most important thing to do is to please share our episodes with other people who could really, you know, they need these messages. They need to hear this information. You never know who that is. So, you know, make sure to share it with folks. And with that, I will thank everybody for joining in. And I look forward to seeing you next time on Unapologetically Black Unicorns.